The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So since the beginning of September I've been uh, just going back, it's not really a review of the basic practice because it's always a review of the basic practice. But just trying to understand what we do, what this path of awakening or this path of open attention, see it as a lineage of basic human common sense, something really straightforward, pragmatic. And always, you know, we have to always be teasing out idealism in our practice. We also have to be teasing out nihilism. In some sense, it isn't worth it, doesn't matter. Both of those are kind of the Buddha rejected. Like, don't get idealistic and think you're going to be saved. But don't think there's nothing to do either. You know, and kind of invest in giving up or just getting by or whatever the opposite of idealism might be. So, the last few weeks we've been asking the question, well, why would anybody want to train their mind? What's the point? And I've, I've been talking and we've been discussing about how all of us, in our own ways, we have this insight. You know, in daily life, in our sitting practice, little by little we start to have this insight that as difficult as certain moments of our life are, or as beautiful as certain moments of our life are, we start to notice that the experience is one thing, but what the mind does to it, with it, is another. And that that's actually the more relevant thing. So we might think that we lost our job, and the fact that I'm suffering is because I lost my job. But actually, it's the activity of fearing, or the activity of tightening up or the activity of denying, that's the real suffering. So the first sort of understanding insight in terms of walking this commonsensical path is to understand that how we relate in the moment to anything is relevant. It's like really relevant. Much more relevant than if we're rich or poor, young or old, male or female, smart or not so smart, much more important than that is how the mind is relating to that experience of being healthy or being unhealthy, being white or being black, being young, being old. How does the mind relate to that experience? And this is a powerful first kind of insight because, as I described the last few weeks, all of a sudden now we see this is our primary work in life as opposed to fixing the world, fixing our partners, fixing this and that. Like, if only I can get this thing organized, clean up the messes, then I'll be safe and I'll be able to relax. Until what? <laughs> Until another mess pops up. I mean, it's, you know... We all know this. So we have to turn that corner, not just once, but over and over again, that this is the work I can do. The world and its ups and downs and its sort of interdependent, interrelatedness, nobody's going to get on top of that. No one's going to control that. No one's going to ever clean it up. It's really about understanding what is the best, most skillful way to understand, to relate to this world that we're living in, this body, mind, world experience that is here now. What is the best way to understand, to relate, to embrace that? So we locate it here, and then as, so that brings the attention here. That's like the first step on the spiritual path from an external worldly orientation to we're really interested on in how the heart's doing, moment by moment. It's like a study of stress and non-stress, being burdened and not being burdened, whether, however that might be in, in a given moment. 
So we're a student of the heart, student of the mind. As we, you know, live our engaged life in the world, in relationship, doing things, not doing things. But this is what's more relevant than whether we decide to buy that or not, whether we decide to get married or not, whether we do this or that. What's really relevant is how's the heart doing in this activity? Is the way the heart is holding, relating, is that heavy? Is it light? Is it tight? Is it released? Is it fearful? Is it loving? Right? So we're just we're just aware of it. And in that awareness, in that practice, as I talked about last week, we begin to notice a correlation. Like when the heart is heavy or tight, fearful, needy, there's a particular activity always correlating with the experience of dukkha, with heaviness, with being burdened. We call this, you know, it's an activity. And this is important because there's nothing we can do about suffering until we see the cause of it. Right? Otherwise, we're just blindly suffering. So we have to see, well, from what does the experience of being tight arise? What, what is the proximate cause for that ache, that heaviness, that tightness in the mind and body? And if we study it enough, we'll see, oh, when there's attachment, when there's identification, when the mind is clinging or grasping, there's always suffering. There's always heaviness. There's always tension. There's always a sense of uh, dis-ease. And when there's no identification, no identifying, no attaching, no clinging, there are no problems, no suffering, no weight. We call that happiness. The happiness is the absence of weight. We think of Nibbana as this sort of beautiful heavenly place, but the word Nibbana, as most of you know, means the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. That's what Nibbana is. It's the word for a fire going out. So the Buddha used it as sort of the centerpiece of this path he taught. He used the word Nibbana, fire going out, not to sort of point to some idealistic notion out there, but that when the fires of greed, anger, and delusion cease to exist in the mind, we call that Nibbana, this liberation. The mind is liberated from these heavy activities. Of course, we don't even realize that as a possibility until we, in a sense, bump up into that experience. We don't, it's like, I use the example often, we don't know the refrigerator is there buzzing along in the, frid, in the kitchen until it stops. And then all of a sudden, oh, oh, what a relief. And it's like we often, when our life is going reasonably well, we don't realize the weight of this self-centered activity until there's a moment when it ceases in the mind. So the mind is a moment, the mind, in a moment, the mind can be free of self-centered activity. And it's like the buoyancy, the natural buoyancy and spaciousness and love, lovingness, it's just like there by default in a sense. And then we realize what a heavy trip we were under a moment ago. That's what sort of teaches us so this is sort of the second step. I mean, I'm kind of making it linear. It's not really linear. It's more cyclical. But so first we have to understand that how the heart-mind is relating is relevant. And then we become a good student of the heart. And we begin to see that whenever it's heavy, there's a particular activity. The mind is actively clinging, grasping, identifying, wanting, needing, fearing. It's doing something that is causing the tension. And then that just begs the question, this is what I wanted to talk about tonight, is kind of the question, well, what is that activity? What can we learn about the activity of clinging, grasping, wanting, needing, fearing, hating? What is that activity? Or how is it that that clinging, grasping, attaching, identifying, how is it that it comes to be? What is the proximate cause, or what are the causes and conditions that naturally lead to attachment, identification, clinging, and grasping? 
And there's an ancient simile that's used. Many of you have heard it before, but you can imagine somebody walking through the woods on their way home. It's dusk, and uh, they round the corner in the woods, and they see something on the path. It's kind of round and thick. And they go, oh my god, it's a snake. They back up really fast, figure out, okay, I'm going to walk way around. I know it's a half mile out of my way, but there's no way I'm going to, you know, chance being bit by this probable poisonous snake. Walks around. And, you know, after that initial experience, there's an imprint in the mind. You know, there because when we see something, even if we don't know for sure if it's a snake, but just the possibility of a snake creates an emotional charge, right? There's an appropriate, natural charge. Like, oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to get bit. And then that charge, because we're not paying attention, right? That charge is going to be converted into grasping, clinging, wanting, identifying, right? So in this case, it's going to be fearing. But it's a charge. The heart gets tight. And then when a few minutes later, as we're walking a half a mile out of the way, and we notice the charge in the heart, what is that casually, you know, in a superficial way? We just notice the charge. What's that charge going to basically be telling us? Life is scary and because there's a snake on the path. And then 10 minutes later, we notice, oh, there's the charge. Oh, yeah, it's scary. There's a, there are dangerous things. There's a snake on the path. So over and over again, every time we remember, every time we feel, that imprint's getting deeper and deeper. So the next day, you know, we just sort of look a little bit because we don't know where we'll be. And yep, there it is again. So we go around. And after a few days, we don't even need to check. We just figure that's just where that snake likes to be. And we avoid it. We avoid it and we avoid it. And if we're lucky, somebody at some point, you know, we just happen to be describing, yeah, it takes me forever to get home now because I have to walk all the way around. And our friend says, well, are you sure there's a snake there? <laughs> well, at that point, we're completely convinced. Because why the heck would we be walking a half mile out of the way for these four months if there wasn't a snake on the road? And it's amazing how the mind is. Like, counter evidence never penetrates. The mind is so, like the fact that it would always be in the same spot doesn't occur to us. Like, that's a little weird. You know, always in the same shape, in the same spot. So much we're uh, seduced or confused by the fear charge, right? The fear charge sort of blinds us. Same with neediness. It blinds the mind. We, in a sense, that charge, which is appropriate, there's nothing wrong when we're, when there's the probability of being bit by a poisonous snake, it's totally appropriate for there to be a charge. The inappropriate part isn't the charge. It's how the mind is in the habit of relating to that charge. It takes it personally, right? It feels there's somebody here who could get bit by a snake, and I don't want that to happen. I can't let that happen. I don't want that to happen. Now, that may seem appropriate, but that proliferation, turning it into a somebody that doesn't want to be bit by a snake, is actually extra. Because the fear is already that just that charges all we need. We don't need to kind of whip it up, the sort of recycling of the charge revisiting it, thinking about it, revisiting the pain or the charge. And it creates this momentum. So then the guy, again, talks to his friend. The friend says, are you sure there's a snake? OK, they come out. They've got their flashlights. You know, they look around. Yes, there it is. You know, and the friend says, well, wait a minute. You know, we're 40 feet away. Snakes don't fly. <laughs> you know, let's just check it out. Here, let's throw this rock, see if it moves. No, it doesn't move. You know, let's throw this stick doesn't move. Well, maybe we could take a few more steps, you know, shine our lights. Well, let's come back tomorrow in the middle of the day. And sure enough, you know, he sees, oh my God, it's just a rope. It's not a snake. And it's more than that, oh, now it's safe. Before it was dangerous, now it's safe. The, the startling thing, the amazing thing is the mind then realizes it never was a snake. No matter how convinced I was that I had to walk around, that it was dangerous, 
It was other than that. It wasn't that. That wasn't the reality. And this is the same thing that we see when we really look at attachment and how it is that attachment arises in the mind or clinging or grasping or fearing or all the different manifestations of this clinging activity. We see it's arising out of a misperception. The mind is misunderstanding the way it is in the moment. And it feels so compelling to do this. Like the guy, after he's avoided the snake, you know, every day for three months, of course he's not just going to walk down that path. You know, of course he's going to do what he's always done. All the ways we've been sort of conditioned to fear, conditioned to desire, you know, how hard it is. It's like uh, people who, you know, get into their 40s or 50s and are living alone. You know, and how many songs we've heard about true love, you know, and finding your soulmate or books we've read and things like that. It's really hard not to just assume that something's wrong if we're not in an intimate relationship. Have you noticed? <laughs> and, uh, and if you are in an intimate relationship, a lot of people stay in it because they're afraid that this is the way it has to be with this partner, a partner, you know? So we get conditioned to see the snake on the path. Got to be this way. It's got to be that way. This is bad. This is good. You know, and this is like how we all culturally, to some degree, toe the line. Because we're afraid. We've been conditioned. This is what's safe. This is what's unsafe. So in Buddhist practice, in this, on this path of awakening, we're beginning to see that there are serious consequences doing living based on conditioning. And so we, we basically have a different kind of religion, you know, a religion that's based on clear seeing. We want to see how it is. We want our activity in the world, the choices we make, the way we're, we are in the world, the way we're relating to the world, we want it to come out of direct experiencing, a kind of uh, directness and alignment with the way it is. And in, in this quality of investigation, because we appreciate how deluding our conditioning is and how much of it there is. And we only know what we know, and we do know that there's a lot more that we don't know. Right? So just because we're seeing some of our conditioning operating, which is good, we have to have this wholesome respect for all the conditioning we're not seeing. Like, you know, like the conditioning about being a male or being a female. Or the conditioning about being, you know, all the different trips. And all of this is active all the time. And there's nothing we can really do about it. You know, all of our prejudices and all of our preconceived ideas, it's not like there's some ejection button where we can just eliminate all that stuff. The way is really to understand it. You know, so if we have built-in prejudices because of our conditioning, it's too easy to imagine we can be free of that stuff. But what we can do is we can illuminate it. We can feel the impulse to judge somebody based on something superficial. And there's some liberation, there's some freedom of that prejudice if we're aware of it. If we fear certain situations like speaking in public or being alone, then knowing that, that there's that tendency, we can then be mindful of the fear. If we're not mindful of the fear, then we're going to believe it. There we are, home alone, and we're going to assume it's dangerous. But if we know that the mind is conditioned to be afraid of being alone, then in a sense, we sort of put it out there. Oh yeah, there's this fear. It's just fear. There's being alone at home at night, and then there's this fear. And there may be some relevant information in that fear, but 90% of it might be just my particular cultural or family conditioning. And the rest, maybe the little bit, may be just like, yeah, it's good to be cautious when you're alone. But so much of the weight gets corrected simply by moving from misperceiving to perceiving to sort of a directness or a 
seeing things as they are. This is, this is the essence of the path the Buddha laid out. We're cultivating skill. We're cultivating the heart or mind that is capable of seeing things as they are. You know, and the particular qualities, you could probably guess what they are. Like, what does a human being need to have that directness, that clarity, that depth of uh, understanding, non-distorted seeing? What does a human mind need? What has to be relaxed? Right? Because if we're tight, if I really want to see the truth, that, that strong desire, that need itself is distorting the mind. I'll kind of, in a sense, rush it in order to see it as it actually is. I'm going to rush into the experience. That rushing itself is going to color what we see. Because if something takes some time to kind of really express itself, we'll miss it. We'll just see something superficially. Or, you know, if we're somewhat indifferent, that also will distort the present moment. So we have to we have to rest, but we have to rest with a real alertness, a real interest, a brightness in the mind. So I like to just reduce it to two qualities. It just makes it easy to remember. So if we want to go beyond our habits of misperceiving things as they are, then we have to cultivate relaxation and alertness. So like in the guided sit tonight, I suggested, you know, with each in-breath, why not repeat a word that for you reminds the mind to be bright, to be alert, to be interested. And with each exhalation, repeat a word or a phrase that reminds your mind to relax, to release, to trust, to let things be the way they are not to fix or control. And that's it. That's all we have to do. Like I said, we can't like intentionally not misperceive. We have to set in motion the mind or heart that naturally sees things as they are. And we'll learn. You know, we'll, we'll learn like we think we're seeing things clearly, and then in hindsight we realize, I missed that. I wasn't aware. Why wasn't the mind clear then? Oh, I had this expectation. I had this fear. I had this desire. The mind was distorted by some kind of subtle clinging or grasping or identification or attachment. It wasn't really pure. But the relaxation and the interest is developed, in a sense, to the nth degree, in balance with each other, not too much tranquility over the interest, not too much interest over the tranquility. But if they develop in balance, in a sense, to the nth degree, then we see, oh, that is a powerful mind. So this is the ideal. Like if we want to be idealistic in our Buddhist practice, then the ideal is to have this beautiful balance. You know, that's why we don't have a lot of sort of uh, symbols around here at Common Ground. We have a few. You know, and the whole point of the statue of the Buddha is to express those two qualities. You know, the uprightness in the spine, that's expressing the interest, the alertness, the clarity. And the sense of release and calm in the face and body in the Buddhist statues, it's sort of expressing the kind of releasing, the trusting, the allowing things to be, learning, being able to rest. But, you know, it may not work for you, and that's okay. <laughs> But the idea is that we do want, we need reminders. You know, like in the meditation practice tonight, knowing, releasing. That's just a reminder. Like, what are we doing? We have to go beyond the opposite, like not knowing and, and thinking tightness is appropriate, you know, and controlling and fixing is appropriate. We have to go beyond those habits because we've learned that they're distorting. And we learned that the only way out of our habits of suffering is to go beyond our habits of misperceiving. Suffering is directly correlated with not seeing things as they are. That's a, that's a powerfully liberating idea, actually. 
Because then, you know what that idea tells us? To whatever degree we have experienced it or have some confidence from our own experience that it's true, what it tells us is that it doesn't matter the kind of life that, we, that each of us have, you know, the particular age that we are, the particular upbringing that we had, the culture we've come from, the wealth that we have. All that matters is, are we developing skill to see things as they are? Because if we are, then the mind will naturally, organically uproot ignorance, uproot the habits of reactivity and craving and fighting with things that are already the way that they are. All of that unnecessary struggling and suffering will diminish. But if we're, if we're not cultivating that mindful, clear, clear uh, sort of openness, then we're doing something else. We're basically reinforcing misperception. And our way of being in the world is going to come out of that misperception. And life is going to be clunky. So when something difficult arises for us, on top of the normal, unavoidable difficulties that arise for human beings, we're going to add a lot of unnecessary suffering. And when something beautiful happens to us, we're going to add to that wonderful experience a lot of unnecessary tension, like the fear of it going away, the fear that somebody else has something even better than what we have. I mean, in so many ways, we add weight to life because we're misperceiving the way things are. I'll just say a couple more things, um, just to kind of set in motion our practice the next couple of weeks as we continue with this discussion. But look particularly at pain, because it's so omnipresent for us. I mean, we bump up against physical pain all the time. Probably right now, there's some discomfort in the body. And just, you know, we can look at our habits of misperceiving right now like how it always, when we're just sort of in our ordinary state of mind, conventional state of mind, superficial state of mind, it just feels so appropriate to not like the pain in our knee or the pain in the back and want to get rid of it by adjusting, moving. And it doesn't sort of strike us as odd that we're willing to move, you know, every few seconds, you know, that kind of restless, compulsive fixing of our body posture. as if that temporary relief is getting us anywhere. I'm not saying that I don't move. You know, I, I stretch and I adjust and it's fine. But we want to kind of really look at that. And in order to see, like, first, you know, we want to break it down and we want to see how the mind is participating. Like whatever pain, whatever heaviness there is because of the particular sensations in the body, we want to see that how the mind is understanding or relating is contributing to it. And that it has to do with attachment or identification. So it's not just that there's this sort of achy feeling in my knee, but in moments there's a sense that's happening to me and I don't like it. I take this pain personal. It's like an insult to me. Right? That's how we feel like, and I'm responsible. But actually, it can be so much more simple than that. There is this pain. There, there are these unpleasant sensations. And that's it. See, it doesn't have to go beyond that. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to move my knee. Just because I understand there is pain, it's unpleasant, and just being with it that way, it doesn't mean that I won't, you know, take my foot off of my calf and release the sensations. It just means it won't be a neurotic activity. It won't be a kind of a have to. Because sometimes we're not able to just move our leg, you know, or that's not going to do anything. So we can really explore in ordinary, in ordinary moments where there's physical pain, we can go through this whole process I'm doing, I'm interested in practice because part of what's wrong with this moment is the fact that, you know, I've gotten bit by a mosquito and now it itches. But part of what's going on is 
the heart mind not liking it or the heart mind reacting to these sensations. So let me get interested in that that attachment, that identification. You're really interested in it. What is it arising out of? Oh, there's some sense of taking it personally. Well, if I if I get really open and clear with the experience of these sensations, is there a different possible way of relating? You know, like how to go beyond misperception? Is there is there another way of perceiving? A more direct, a more honest way of seeing the experience. So it's this is the thing. The liberation, which is, you know, that's kind of a provocative word. You know, a lot of us see ourselves as realists, and when somebody talks about liberation or going beyond suffering, going beyond problems, self-centered problems, it seems a little bit like, like I talked about earlier, like idealistic. And if that's all we do is sort of think about going beyond our personal problems, you're right, it's idealistic. But we want to check it out. We want to actually see directly what happens when we follow this very rational approach, which is basically saying when we don't pay careful attention, we tend to act and relate and understand out of habit. And a lot of our habits have nothing to do with reality. And they cause all kinds of problems. Now, that makes a lot of sense when you look at the world. You know, people doing things, they're not helping themselves and not helping people around them. But they think they're helping themselves. You know, everybody is doing what they think is going to lead to happiness. But just look at the world we live in, what we do. So the Buddha is saying, well, if the problem is our way of relating is has little to do with the way it actually is, let's do our best to come into alignment with the way it actually is. And let that coming into alignment with the way it actually is transform our views about things, our view, our understanding. Ultimately, the right view is to be so devoted to being open, clear, relaxed, that that's our view. Our view isn't like, like this is how it is in the world, no philosophical principle. It's just our view is relate to everything with the purity of that simple, calm presence. That's it. That could be our, you know, we could have our little beautiful little gold box and we'd put our essential teachings in it and they would say, you know, pay attention in this very simple, direct, open, non-distorted way. That's it. That's the sum total of the path. Because everything good, according to this path, just comes out of that. Everything bad, all of the terrible suffering in the world coming out of injustice and greed and fear and violence, it's coming due to misperceptions. People think it's this way. They act on it. Like, if we get rid of the bad guys, we in America will feel safe. So let's go get rid of the bad guys. You know, and it's, it seems so rational. It seems to make so much sense. But we don't realize the fear, how much the fear is distorting our minds. You know, a lot of fear got uh, generated or ignited after 9-11. And so things that wouldn't have made sense started to make sense. And now how do we get, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, now the fear is already out there. So now we have to look at the fear and see it's just fear. That's how we calm everything down. And that's the same with us, you know. Like we already may be in the position where we're already not liking the pain in the knee. So we can't actually look at the pain in the knee. First, we have to look at the mark who doesn't like the pain in the knee. We have to see that psychological state. I don't like this pain in my knee. I want it to be gone. It's not fair. So we look at that first. Oh, this is just the mind tripping. This is the mind having a storm. And it's like this. And in a way, we bring that clarity and that relaxation to the mind having a trip, having a storm. Oh, the mind is storming. It's like this. Can this be okay? 
Can I allow this to be? Can I relax with the storming? And yes, yes, we can actually. And eventually the storm naturally settles down. And we can do the same thing with the pain. Oh, this is pain. Being known. Can it be okay? Can the mind be clear and relaxed with it? So that it doesn't have to do something that causes pain, causes suffering. It's just the ordinary ache of the knee, the ordinary ache of the heart, the ordinary feelings of loss, of loneliness, but nothing added to it. All of that is actually quite workable. But what's not workable is our endless proliferation, our endless churning and struggling with the ordinary ups and downs in life. That's really unworkable. So we'll keep coming back to this, but I wanted to put aside some time to hear from people tonight. So we have about 19 minutes or so. Questions you might have or comments? Yeah, Julian. It brings up a, a couple of thoughts. One is Milan Kundera has a beautiful book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, where the characters are constantly rubbing up against this, this feeling of love and security and lightness and presence, whether it be with pain or with love, and then sabotaging it and just back and forth and back and forth. But I, I've always loved the, the image of lightness and that feeling of, of presence. Yeah. Brings up that, and then also, I'm still not sure the, the point of this, but a few years ago there was a paragraph article in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was about frogs, and and it was how how where the sound of frogs come from. And some researchers at Stanford had discovered that the croaking from frogs actually comes from vibration in their ears. Hmm. The sound comes out of their ears. You know, and for all of human history, we've assumed that the sound, of course, comes from the throat, you know. And so it's how it's helped me is just to have it be sound and not assume. Because having that don't know mind is always so important. Like you talk about the bad guys. But yeah, I mean, this, you know, are they really bad guys? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. But it's just, it's just helped me to, to kind of wake up to sound and experience and 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 that don't know mind, which I think is is so essential. Yeah. Yeah, and respecting all of our patterns that make that hard. Like you know, someone like me, growing up in the late fifties and sixties. Uh, you know, playing with G.I. Joes. I mean, we, I practiced that sort of warring mentality. You know, I had all the little soldiers and G.I. Joes and things like that, and play guns. And so this whole, and then sports and competition. So there's just, that's such a big imprint. So when I come to my spiritual practice in my early 20s, you know, I just assumed it was just another war to fight. And, you know, we got to tease that out slowly. Everybody brings their own trip. In, you know, like we think the sound of a frog comes from the throat. And and it is distorting when we actually bump up against that, like they, that title, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I always like that title, too. And I like the book. You know, we bump up against it, but we don't understand it. This is the difference between naturally human beings will bump up against a mind that is in this more direct non-attached, non-identified relationship with the present moment. But the mind doesn't necessarily understand what just happened. It just feels light. It just feels free. So it just assumes that, you know, I'm good or life is good. It just makes a kind of superficial assumption. And that, this is what, I mean, this is what I discovered. Everything goes. You know, because I'm feeling so light and good, everything I want, everything I think is good too. You know, there's no understanding that this experience happened because of what wasn't there. So then I started tripping on, like, well, what am I going to do with all this joy? You know, and now I can get what I want because I feel happy. I'm energized. And we just kind of spin with it. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Julian. Other thoughts? Cindy? Yeah, I was uh, walking deep in the woods this afternoon, and um, this little snake slithered <laughs> Maybe a little louder, Cindy. Um, so, but I was with somebody who really likes snakes, and and I 
Yeah, there are black squirrels. Yeah. Thanks, Cindy. Did you have a thought? Uh, Say your name? Charlie. Charlie. That's right. Uh, yeah, you know, a couple of weeks ago I was sitting here speaking. And, and maybe even louder for the people in the back. Sure. You were speaking about uh, thought coming and then a feeling tone rising. Uh, and then there being an opportunity not to identify that this as it happens. And uh, while I was listening, I was thinking, is that what I do? <laughs> oh, no, in fact, I, I really believe that I need to identify with this and extract you know, this deep meaning from it. And, uh, and then I, I saw this, uh, you know, like, personality that had been formed over you know, days upon days upon life years of this extraction. And, uh, and I was just, I just saw it. Uh, and then uh, the way that's sort of unfolded in, in the next couple of weeks here uh, is I've been in a tremendously difficult uh, place in life. Uh, but I've been able to, in the midst of these storms, uh, you know, with uh, intense feelings of hatred and anger and you know, this kind of stuff coming in, to be able to say, eh, you know, okay, you know, let it go. And, uh, you know, it, it all sort of came to a head late last night and and early this morning, and, and I was able to stand with it, and, and then came to a place where it was all just, it was okay, and, and I felt this whole experience has been building for more than a year to sort of really shift. Yeah. And uh, once again, you know, much gratitude. Yeah, yeah, it's a very potent practice, and even if you don't believe it, and it's not necessarily good to believe it, keep your mind open to how transforming the practice can be. And Charlie talked about the insight. It's a huge insight to see that little activity that I talked about. You know, once we have the wherewithal to look at our heart, look at our mind, then we see this extraction process, like the mind, heart, out of habit, is trying to extract personal meaning from the pain, from the beauty we experience in the world. And when we actually see it, it's huge because we see how unnecessary that is. It's extra. But we actually have to see it in the moment that it's extra. And then it really changes everything. If we see it deeply, it changes things very quickly. If we see it partially, then it sort of begins to slowly unwind some habits. Because all of a sudden, there's a choice. Now, now the mind is aware that it doesn't need to do that extraction process. It can just let pain be pain and let beauty be beauty. That's another option. But before we see that, there is no other option. If it's painful, we struggle to get rid of it. If it's pleasant or beautiful, we struggle to hang on to it and make it ours. And that's just how it is until there's this insight. So it's, it's a huge. Thanks for sharing it. I don't know your name. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Uh, several weeks ago, you said something I didn't want to believe was true. Um, <laughs> that it's just as easy to get the attachment and clinging to something that's pleasant as it is to something that's not pleasant. And I mean, I get it when I'm attached and clinging to something that's fearful or I'm angry, and I understand how that directly causes suffering. 
if something really great happened or something really exciting was happening, that getting attached to that was causing any suffering at all. It's just exhilarating. It's vibrant. <laughs> and why not go there? It's really fun. Well, then life gives me some opportunities to discuss, you know, discover that this is exactly what happens. Um, my son got some really great news. And in the moment that he got the news, we were all truly excited, and that was all wonderful. And then my mind started going, with, oh, well, then this might mean he gets more scholarships. And then, well, this might change what school he's going to go to. And then, well, I should get him a lesson to do this. And it's like, then I started just, like, spinning on all of this. And it was all very exciting. But then I realized where the suffering came in was not necessarily my own busy mind. I mean, that I can calm down. But then I started to relate to him differently. And my expectations of him, because of all of this crazy mind stuff, my expectations were, became more unreasonable for him. And then that's when I, I put the brakes on it and said, you know what, this is not helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, it's more intoxicating because when we're experiencing something painful, the pain can, at least at times, wake us up a little bit. But when we experience something really beautiful or pleasant, it has the opposite effect. It's basically saying, you don't have to pay attention because things are going really well. But actually, what we want to see is we want to see that the pleasantness is just pleasantness. You know, the joy is just joy. Because then the mind can relate more calmly, more directly with the choices at hand. There's not a rushing to make it, to continue it, or to build it, or to anything. And yeah, thanks so much, Jan, for sharing that. Good luck. <laughs> Other thoughts people have for the group? Yeah, remind me of your name. Sure. Um, Yeah. Well, we, we, it seems, I don't know why this is, but in sort of our current culture, especially those people who have sort of explored spiritual things, we turn the mind into the bad guy and the heart into the good guy. <laughs> I think that's just, you know, it's just kind of the way our language has evolved now, in certain circles at least. But I think it's really nice to just make it one thing. And unfortunately, we have two words. So I usually use them to make sure that people are putting both whatever you think of as the heart and whatever you think of as the mind. Just just call it you know, one thing. But we have two words, so I say the heart-mind. And it, what is the heart-mind? Well, you know, when we're feeling really burdened by life, the fear, that weight, that difficulty, the dukkha, that's... The, in a sense, the location of it. It's happening in the heart or the mind. The mind is heavy. The mind is hurts. The, there's mental suffering. There's heart hurts. And when we're feeling really free of that weight, where does that happen? And what happens in the mind or in the heart? So now there are different, you know, sometimes we, we associate emotions with the heart and content, mental content with the mind. But that's just, you know, that's just how we've used language. There's nothing wrong with it. But actually, you know, feeling and knowing content, it's just part of this present moment thing we call self, or here, or now, or this, you know. So in another way, the mind-heart is also referring to this, this present moment. And the body, in a way, is a denser reflection of the mind kind of a slower, denser reflection of the mind. It's also true here and now, right? I mean, we're aware of the density, the sensation of the body. But where's the mind and the heart? Well, it's also right there. That's also right here. It's always here. So in some later schools in Buddhism, you know, they were referred to as the all-mind school. You know, it's just a, an emphasis on a particular philosophical point. But it's, it's useful just to hear this, that that our reality that we think of as being very dimensional, like there's the past, the future, the present, there's, you know, over here and then over there, uh, 
uh, me, you. But actually, it's just this. That's all reality ever is. It's just this. And it's not like this, there's the mind, this, and then there's something. It's just this experience of the mind. It's just this, you know, we're all sensitive, right? And that's our whole reality. There's nothing outside of our sensitivity. Now, we could make philosophical arguments that our sensitivity, what we're sensitive to, is about something out there. But that's a thought we're having here, now, in this, right? So the external world is just a concept here, now, in the mind. Everything is here and now, always here and now. So that's what we mean by the heart, mind, too. This, 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 this. <laughs> thanks. It's Sharon? Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Maybe time for one more comment or question? Yeah, Brad. You mentioned, this happened yesterday, that in our 40s and 50s, we tend to think we should be couples. Uh, I was in a church service yesterday and leaving and ran into a couple that I knew when we were just talking for a minute, and they said, oh, you're here alone. At first I thought, well, there's something wrong with me. That was my first reaction. Yeah. And then I thought, well, no, this is my preference. And, uh, and then I thought they were very uncomfortable with my being here alone. And that was really the source of what was. So I just said yes to what I'm going to comment. But interesting you mentioned it tonight. Yeah, yeah. And this is how suffering kind of gets passed along. So even if we're in, in the moment sort of okay, you know, and we're not projecting a lot of expectations or anything on the moment, but if somebody else does, oftentimes the projections from other people, there's a sympathetic resonance in our own conditioning, you know, and there we are co-suffering with them, you know. Any last thought? So just leave it here. Let's just take a moment, take a few breaths together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.